from the Tao Te Ching, number 67. Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty but impractical. But to those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, uh, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. It's a bit of a mini-series. We had one week last week and one week this week. Uh, last week, we looked at the weaknesses that each of us have that make us vulnerable to error, making mistakes through operating out of our weaknesses rather than being aware of the weaknesses that we have and transforming them. I pointed uh, out that one of the ways that we we get led into that kind of error is when our passion or our desire for something blinds us so that we don't see the ethical lines that we're crossing, like people being passionate about their children's future and missing the ethical lines that led to the college admission scandal, people being so passionate about winning that it led to the baseball sign-stealing scandal or the Boeing scandal, people being passionate about money being at the heart of that one. However, one is keen on the notion of passion and desire. You know, in life nowadays, you know, we all like the idea of passion and desire. It's a good thing. You know, we tell our children, follow your passion, go for what you want. And that, that concept of, of being passionate and wanting things is really at the heart of the American dream, at the heart of what we're trying you know, to have happen in our lives. But I think that it's worth examining whether or not these drivers always lead to healthy outcomes. I said a while ago that at school, I was pretty much average at everything. If the truth be told, I was below average. I was a kind of surly kid, skulking around the back of the scrum, really without getting involved. But more than that, at school, I was never really passionate about anything. You know, there was nothing really that I wanted, you know, academic success, success on the field, art. They were all there, but there were things that I had to be involved in because I was part of that school and, and people did that sort of stuff rather than things that I could really become passionate about. So I sort of drifted through life, you know, just trying to get by. I mean, the first time I really became passionate about anything was really when I went into broadcasting. 
when I was at college, every, every uh, day I used to drive down to college and I used to see a big sign saying BBC Centre uh, on the left as I drove down White Ladies Road in Bristol. And I, I thought, well, I'd really like to work at the BBC. I thought, I thought that's a really a good idea. So literally one day I, I literally drove into the BBC car park. I parked the car and I went up to the reception and I said, uh, I'd like to work here. And the receptionist said, who are you? And I said, I'm a student. And she said, oh, third door on the right, because there was a student program. And uh, I was on my way. And eventually, I was asked to do the early morning drive show between 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning. I was no good at it. You know, I, I took the record off at the wrong time. I remember once I had to, to read the Chinese cricket team out, you know, when I was reading the news. And, you know... I got into terrible trouble, but, but I was keen, and they wanted someone who was cheap. Um, and I know I was, I was passionate about it because I was willing to get up at five o'clock in the morning to work there. You know, nothing previously would have persuaded me to get up at five o'clock in the morning to do anything, especially as a student. Uh, so that, for me, was evidence of my passion. And I spent really most of my waking hours at the station, you know, interviewing, putting programs together. And it was the first time I really felt passionate about things. And that led me into working into advertising. I didn't think I was particularly good on air in broadcasting. I, I, I didn't like the idea of speaking to a microphone. You know, I, there wasn't any comeback and I, I, I wasn't very good at it. So advertising seemed the next best thing. And once again, I became passionate about advertising. I went in on the business side of advertising. I was an account manager in, in an advertising agency. And I used to come in in a suit and sort of work out when the clients were meetings. And there were these people that came in in the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, wearing jeans. And they used to take long lunch breaks and leave at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said to someone, who are these people? They said, well, they're the creative department. I thought, rather like, rather like Toad in the Wind in the Willows, I thought, right, the creative department. <laughs> That's where my future is. And so, and so I actually, I made a decision. I wanted to join the creative department. And, you know, they're the people that, that you know, put the ads together. They wrote the copy and did, did all the stuff like that. And eventually, I ended up, you know, you have to be really keen on these things. I ended up as a copywriter at an English advertising company called Saatchi and Saatchi. And again, I was completely passionate about advertising. I was willing to do whatever it took to create good ads. And in advertising in the 1970s, that meant quite a lot of mind-altering substances. Just like the romantic poets, Wordsworth and Coleridge in the 19th century, and, you know, I find myself vaguely crossing various ethical lines in that department, you know, being driven on by my passion. But really, you know, what, what was that passion for? In the case of, of both broadcasting and advertising, you know, if I really look at it, what drove me really was a desire for acclamation. I wanted to be noticed, for people to tell me how great, my ads were. You know, you do your ads and you say, oh, that's fantastic, they're so great. And people come up to you, they're in the newspapers. They tell you how great they were or how great the programs were that I put together. I mean, essentially, I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to have attention. I wanted to be loved. And these were the ways that really I felt that I, I could go about getting that. 
Not because I had some intrinsic love about spreading the news or creating good ads, but it was really for what it brought me. And underneath all of that really was a fundamental lack. You know, there was a, a desire to be whole, wanting to fill that lack. And I experienced myself within that, you know, feeling unloved and wanting some way to get that love in that particular way. My next passion, uh, I really took on for the same reason. My next passion after advertising was spirituality. And really, I became passionate about that because, again, I actually thought that would fill that hole. It would deal with the pain that I felt in my life, you know, from a lack of love and from a lack of emotional engagement. And, you know, to some extent, it did do the trick. But actually, it took 20 years you know, although I was focused on my spirituality for all of that time, you know, much of my life at the beginning of my whole spiritual life was, was still pretty dysfunctional. And there were lessons, even though you're going for the spiritual side of things, there are lessons that really you still have to learn. It was not until I understood some of those motivating factors that had driven me in my life that I began to realize, you know, that pain was a part of my life. And that to try and fill that emptiness with something else really just wouldn't work. My passion was driven by my desire to rid myself of pain. And of course, passion is all about pain. The Latin word, the word, comes, the word passion comes from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer. And the nature of passion is all bound up in the nature of pain. And in my case, I was willing to take the pain of getting up at five o'clock in the morning and all the work and pain that went into creating to actually avoid the greater pain in my life that was a function of that experience of emptiness. And that's why I think we have to be really careful about the nature of passion and desire. You can see really, in the whole area of erotic love. Eros, erotic love, is, is about wanting something. Love, actually, that erotic love, that wanting something, there can actually be a pain at the centre of that that we want to get rid of. Now, when you see someone across the room, and, of course, I'm not talking about any of us here now, but when one sees some, someone across the room, uh, and you get that first feeling of, of desire for that, that, that person. If you look at that feeling of desire, if you really go into it and have a look at what that feeling is, it, it is actually a pain. The feeling of desire is a pain. And to some extent, when we look across, we feel that pain and desire, and we want to assuage that pain. And so we go over and we make our play, and that, that desire often comes from that. Now, we might say that that's the pain of desire, but actually what we have is a pain that sometimes we relate to desire, but it might be another pain. It could be a pain of emptiness that both of us share, and we see the other person as a way of actually getting rid of the pain that we feel. So again, we make our play. 
And we have to look at really what's driving us in these situations. In either case, you know, pain's involved and there's, there's a desire to get rid of that pain. And that whole process ends up in a feeling of the pain going away to some extent. But then it does come back again. The key thing here is that I think both our desire and our passion mustn't go unexamined. As likely as not, both passion and desire that we have are related to something deeper, something maybe that we're compensating for, something that implies a lack of wholeness. Because as Meister Eckhart, the, the 13th century mystic, you know, his perspective that in life, spiritually particularly, we want for nothing. The one who is open to God, Meister Eckhart says, is the one who lives in true poverty. Living in true poverty is being completely open to anything that comes in our life. We live in that poverty and therefore we're not trying to get something. We live in a poverty that just receives out of that poverty. And Eckhart says, one who is poor is one who wills nothing. He's not trying to get something to happen. Eckhart says, so long as a person has his own wish to fulfill, even if that is a desire to satisfy God's will, he says, whatever your wish is, he's not saying, you know, your wish for a Lamborghini. He says, even if your wish is to serve the poor or to satisfy God's will, if you have a fundamental wish, then he says that that person is not truly poor. He says, for a person to be truly poor, she must be as free of their created will, that will that they want to make things happen. She must, he must be free of that created will as when they did not exist. That emptiness, there's no will before one existed. And I'm not sure if you get the idea, but Eckhart is saying that all willfulness of any kind is a substitute for the acceptance that is at the heart of an experience of serenity and equanimity. All willfulness, all, all desire, all wanting something to happen of any kind is a substitute for the acceptance that's at the heart of an experience of serenity and equanimity. His idea is that the perfect state is when one realizes that spiritually one wants for nothing. I mean, I have to say that this is after you've got enough food to eat, make sure no one's chasing you. You know, obviously, if you're in an unjust regime situation, you know, you've got to get out of it and all that sort of stuff. But when we're here in a situation and we're looking at how we develop our experience of our ability to love, when we're in that situation, we have to realize that in our lives, we spiritually, we want for nothing, that the universe is full, present and abundant in our lives. And that therefore, there is nothing to want. There is nothing to desire. And he also adds, because our minds are always trying to work things out, he says that we should remain in a state of not knowing, of not trying to work it out, of, of being there and not knowing what is going on, just allowing ourselves not to know, wanting for nothing, willing nothing, and knowing nothing. 
He describes this as the meditative state, that when you're in meditation, that's how you should be. But he also says that actually that is the state to truly be in life in relationship with God. Almost the complete opposite of the desire and passion that most of us allow our lives to be run by. And that stanza from the Tai Chi Ching, number 67, it says, just a part of it, it says, I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These three things are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, patient with friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Very Byron Katie. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. And compassionate towards yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. And I think it's interesting that that pain is involved in those last two treasures. Patient with both friends and enemies. And of course, the word patient comes from the same root as the other word, passio. That's where the word patient comes from. It actually means to be patient is to suffer with our friends and enemies. It's to suffer for our friends and enemies rather than reacting to them. We live with what is rather than trying to change others, to be patient with both friends and enemies and compassionate towards ourselves, again, from the passio root, to allow ourselves to feel our own suffering. We reconcile all beings in the world. I mean, isn't that interesting? To allow ourselves to feel our own suffering. By doing that, we reconcile all beings in the world. It's interesting that the point of reconciliation is not to have everyone else agree or compromise, but to be willing to feel our own pain. And it shifts the focus from out there to here in the whole aspect of reconciliation. Gandhi knew this, which is why his response to the unrest created by the struggle for home rule in India was to fast. His response was to fast. In other words, I'm going to feel my own suffering here. His understanding of what it would take to bring peace. He also came up with that wonderful and I think encouraging quote. All through history, the way of truth and love has always won. All through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Always, says Gandhi. Think of it. Always. I think that's so encouraging. (laughs) All through history, the way of truth and love has always won. The way that we reconcile the world is to be with what is, And to feel our suffering, which again is what Jesus did in those last few days that we know as the passion. 
He was reconciling the world through feeling his own suffering. He was actively passive from the moment of the kiss from Judas right up to the crucifixion, opening himself to the suffering that entailed. It's interesting when we hear you know, people say to us, be compassionate towards yourself, reconcile yourself with all beings. We're apt to think that means being nice to yourself and forgiving yourself. What it actually means is being willing to have and transform our pain. All of which speaks to why the whole idea of acting on desire and being subject to our passions can lead us in directions that might be unhelpful if we don't examine where they're coming from. Because it's easy to see why passion, and all that goes with that, is the enemy of humility. You can see that, that passion is the enemy of humility, that that poverty that Meisterecott spoke about, the humility is often the reverse of the passion that most of us express and feel. Passion drives us on. It makes us feel right. It gives us agreement to the direction that we're forging and doesn't ask us to examine our motives too carefully. Instead, we're asked to love, to give of ourselves with no expectation of a return. And in itself, that rather puts the kibosh on any notions that fulfilling our desires is an appropriate response to life. And if that all seems too lofty and, you know, out there, you know, if love, giving with no expectation of return is just too difficult a concept, then perhaps we should merely resort to tenderness. Something that there's definitely not too much of in the world. Unlike passion, tenderness does include aspects of humility. And it can lead us to love if we feel that love is too difficult to express. Do you know, there's a vulnerability in tenderness that includes being patient with both friends and enemies and being compassionate towards oneself. The word comes from the old French, tendre, which means soft, easily injured, kind, affectionate, loving. Meaning, from the French, having the delicacy of youth, young, someone of a tender age. That famous quote from Jesus, unless you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, suggests that concept of tenderness. We're asked to be tender to others and to ourselves, to be kind. My religion is kindness, uh, said the Dalai Lama. Or as Mr. Rogers said, there are three ways to ultimate success. The first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. The third way is to be kind. The whole notion of the fulfillment of desire, the following of our passions, doesn't obviously lead to kindness. It drives us in ways that can lead to error, into self-preoccupation and into ways of being that doesn't acknowledge latent underlying drives that are deep within us. Now, I'm not saying that the nature of passion can't be helpful. 
know, Jesus's ministry for those three years, right up to Jesus's kiss, it was a passionate one. You know, we have passion in our lives as well. But if that passion is unexamined, if it's there to mask pain, rather than, as in Jesus' case, to fulfill a costly, painful contribution that involved him giving of himself with no expectation of return, then it can lead to places where we might not want to go, where we might end up weeping bitterly, as in the college admissions, the baseball sign stealing or the Boeing scandals. Tenderness, on the other hand, leads us to that love, to that humility where pain is acknowledged and transformed and where we accord with the way things are and reconcile all beings in the world. Amen. So let's pray. We do pray for that sense of tenderness and compassion in ourselves, in our leaders, in all those around the world that have influence. We pray a sense of love, a sense of compassion, a willingness to be vulnerable. We pray that in the world, these emotions, these things may influence those in authority. Pray for those in war zones at the moment, all the difficulties that involves. Those in prisons, in unjust regimes, those in unjust relationships. Pray for all those suffering from the effects of the coronavirus all around the world. Pray for the fear that's there. Pray for those who are homeless, those who are hungry. Pray for the passions that rage all around the world, the desires that rage. Pray for them to be examined in each individual. We pray for those who are ill at the moment. Particularly in our community, we pray for Rita Hunter, for Heather Morrow, for Brett McKenzie, David Harrod, Petra Criminal, Marianne Boltz, Jim Stark, Dorian Holm. Particularly pray for Karen Friedberg, who's going for hip and back surgery on Tuesday. For John and Susan Wampler, Laurie Ellis, Pat Freeman, Christopher Gavitt with an as yet unidentified autoimmune disease, and for the family of Sharon Miners, who died last week. Lord, we offer all these to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being here. And uh, we're going to pass around the plate now. I just want to thank you in advance for your contribution. We really appreciate Uh, what you give and what enables us to carry on here at the Aspen Chapel. Thank you.